Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the programme. In the place where I grew up, an encounter with a gnome was considered remarkable. The odd plastic swan, or for those with more pretentious aspirations, plaster eagles on the gate pillars represented the limit to garden ornamentation, but never a gnome. That was a step too far for rural Kilkenny gardening. To know more about my particular gnome, I need to tell you something about Michael. I was 13 when he came into my life. The man was something of a gnome himself, five foot nothing with rust red hair, Sam Maguire ears and a boyish smile that seldom left his face. I watched from one of the front pews in the big chapel in Callan as he stood stuffed into a wedding suit, answered the priest with I do and placed a ring on my mother's finger the day they got married. I was happy for them both. For the next five years, Michael was part of my everyday life. You might say I was a type of unintended dowry that came with my mother. He lived with me through the angst-ridden teenage phases of my youth, and looking back on those times, I realised the man was a living saint. As my hair grew longer, my elephant flares wider, and my interest in music louder, he never as much as raised a bushy eyebrow, just left me to grow and develop at my own pace, there only if needed. Born in the rebel county of Cork, in his middle years, love relocated him into the heartland of Kilkenny. He was a local curiosity. His accent and devotion to Cork hurling marked him as different. So proud was he of his birth county, he insisted on flying the Cork colours, the red and white Confederate blooded bandage from a chestnut tree in our front garden. My mother, a cat to the core, was embarrassed by this performance. But embarrassment turned to supportive anger when one night, under the cover of darkness, someone removed the offending ensign. In a small locality such as ours, there were obvious suspects, and it didn't take the woman long to establish the culprit and have the flag restored to its rightful place. In and around this time, Michael acquired the gnome. Perhaps it was the predominantly red and white colouring of the ornament that attracted him, but whatever the draw, he placed it in his rose garden in pride of place amongst his blooms. I might add, similarly selected for their red and white displays. A thing I have come to learn over time is how dangerous it can be to coerce someone into backing down in public. Thus shamed, they have a tendency to wait in the long grass for an opportunity to exact revenge. The gnome was an ideal candidate for retribution, and similar to the flag, it also disappeared one night. However, this crime proved harder to solve. During routine discourse with passing neighbours, Michael's gaze interrogated potentially guilty suspects but in an effort to be clever, he never once brought up the subject of the missing gnome. Throughout all those social encounters, he remained vigilant for a telltale twitch or suppressed snigger. All were suspect. Those were the days of Columbo, Kojak and Ironside. By watching a diet of American detective shows, Michael believed he knew how to spot a guilty falsehood.
However, unlike the flag incident, this was becoming a harder case to crack. As before, it was my mother who eventually came to the rescue. I don't know what she said, how she said it, or even who she said it to, but one evening she returned with the gnome sitting on the carrier of her bicycle. Thereafter, Michael's trust in Kilkenny people was permanently dented. Neither flag nor gnome were left outside when darkness fell. The furled flag lay in the corner of a locked shed and the gnome stood beside the fire, attentively on guard with his little lantern held aloft as if protecting husband and wife from the darkness and evil that might exist on the far side of their kitchen door. Michael is no longer with us. His name was never on my birth certificate. In the space for a father's name there is only a dash. Instead of blood there is just ink. I may not have inherited Michael's name, but via a very circuitous route I have recently taken ownership of his gnome. And on this Father's Day I promise to take good care of it and to treasure the memory of the gentlest of gentlemen who was unafraid to fall in love and to fly his flag in a time when it was both unpopular and unfashionable to do so. Painter, playwright, politician, economist, editor, mystic. Labelled that myriad-minded man, George William Russell was born in Lurgan in 1867 and died in Bournemouth in 1935. He spent almost his entire life in Dublin, where he was a central figure in the cultural and public life of the city and country for over four decades. He contributed more than any other individual to diverse aspects of Irish life during that period. The breadth of his expertise was all the more remarkable since he shunned formal education, declaring, I learned nothing at school, being quite clever enough to evade knowledge by seeming to possess it. Russell met W.B. Yeats when both attended the Metropolitan School of Art. They became lifelong friends and occasional rivals. With a shared interest in the esoteric, Yeats and Russell joined the Theosophical Society of Madame Blavatsky, whose aim was to unite the various religions of the world into a single spiritual movement. They were deeply influenced by the Hindu mystic Mohini Chatterjee, who visited Ireland to establish its Dublin Lodge. Another visitor was its first president, Colonel Olcott, one of whose lectures was entitled The Irish Fairies Scientifically Considered. As a youth, Russell experienced frequent trances, waking dreams of heightened consciousness with visions of cosmic happenings. He believed that a strange self, indeed a multiplicity of beings, was trying to enter his body. He was employed as an accountant at Pym's Drapery Store in South Great Georgia Street, a tiresome occupation from which his daily reveries provided alleviation. In 1897, recommended by Yeats, he took up employment with Horace Plunkett's Irish Agricultural Organisation Society, where his job was to establish farming cooperatives and credit banks around the country. 
He also edited the Society's journal, The Irish Homestead. He travelled through every county in Ireland, talking to farmers about the advantages of cooperatives, discoursing on his favourite topics of pigs, poetry, poultry and metaphysics. One farmer requested a loan to buy a suit. When Russell pointed out this was not the best attire for farm work, nor the most agriculturally productive, he explained that it would enable him to marry a girl who owned two acres, a pig and £25. Russell acquired various monikers, including the Hairy Fairy, because of his bushy beard and voluminous head of hair. As nom de plume, he himself chose aeon, the Greek word for epoch or age, a term used by the ancient Gnostics to refer to the eternal order of spirit. Russell's printer had difficulty reading his writing and curtailed it to A.E. Russell gladly adopted it as his appellation and from then on signed everything A.E. Russell seems to have been universally loved. Patrick Kavanagh called him a great and holy man. Frank O'Connor related, Russell would cheerfully get you a new doctor, a new wife, a new flat or a new job. And if you were ill, he'd come along and cook for you and nurse you. One evening when he came to my flat and found I'd been ill for the preceding week, the tears came into his eyes and he said, You should have sent for me. I could have cooked for you. I'm quite a good cook. I can cook chops, you know. In August 1902, A.E. arrived home to find a young James Joyce sitting on his doorstep in Rathgar. Having listened to his poems, A.E. pronounced, Young man, there is not enough chaos in you to be a poet. Joyce reposted, that while it was intellectually interesting, theosophy was a refuge for renegade Protestants. Twenty years later, A.E. was immortalised in the Scylla and Charybdis episode of Joyce's Ulysses, which takes place in the National Library. The discussion centres on the origin and meaning of art. All these questions are purely academic, Russell oracled out of his shadow. The supreme question about a work of art is out of how deep a life does it spring the deepest poetry of Shelley, the words of Hamlet bring our mind into contact with the eternal wisdom, Plato's world of ideas. All the rest is the speculation of schoolboys for schoolboys. In the episode, Stephen Dedalus is asked about the pound borrowed from Russell when he was hungry. He theorises on the physical alteration of his body in the intervening period in the hope that he can be absolved from the debt. Wait, five months... Molecules all change. I am other I now. Other I got pound. But as a convinced Aristotelian, Stephen recalls that what defines him are not the material molecules of his body, but the spiritual form of his soul. He must pay up. Joyce gives us perhaps the most brilliant joke in literature, a complete sentence made up of the five vowels. Stephen submits, A-E-I-O-U. It's a late Saturday night, and this evening it's just me in the house. 
I decide to give my father a call, because I know we don't talk enough, and my mother is away somewhere this weekend, so he is all alone at home. I just want to hear his voice, let him know that he's not alone. He picks up my call after two rings, and a video of him pops up on my screen. He's wearing a hat and a fleece-lined vest, sitting at the tiny fireplace in the only room that can sustain any kind of warmth. A hundred-year-old wooden house by the sea is not an easy place to be, when the north wind arrives carrying harsh rains, tearing at the seams of the structure. Maybe it's the light, but he looks much older than I remember. There's a long silence at first, and I wonder if there's a connection issue, but I can still hear him breathing. Do you miss home? He asks, eventually. I don't know, Dad. I guess so. If he'd asked me a year ago, the answer would have been more clear-cut. I do miss home, but not in any way I understand. Sometimes I get so homesick I have to lie down on the floor. But even then, I don't necessarily want to go back. Never mind. Sorry about that, he says. How have you been? I'm all right. I'm doing my best. I know you are. Then he says, listen to this. He goes on to recite a poem he's come up with on his way home from work. I listen with my eyes closed, concentrating on his voice and how it breaks the silence in a gentle but sure way. My father is a poet, although he would not agree with that description. Maybe he'd smile and take it as a joke. He's a poet who has never written a single word of it down. All his poems are spoken, fluid, vivid, fueled by the moments in which they are created. He does not feel the pressure to make any of it perfect, or make any of it last. Sometimes I tell him to slow down so I can put it down on paper. But he smiles and tells me that there's no point, that his poems have to rise in the air and dissipate. They live and die in settings and scenes, always between himself and the people who happen to be there with him. I no longer try to convince him otherwise. We talk about other things. He tells me about my siblings, what they're doing. I've heard all this from my mother, but I don't say so. I like to hear him talk about all the small, mundane things of life. We're on the call for a good two hours. He is a man made up of very old scar tissue. Not physical. Not the kind you can see, or the kind a passerby would give a second look. All his scars are on the inside. The Soviet army forced him out of education, took the words from his mouth and the dreams from his heart, and left him with no way to explain any of it. Scar tissue has no nerve endings. It does not feel or touch. All he has left is phantom pain. Pain in limbs that are no longer there. Nobody really tells you how much worse that is than living pain. I am my father's daughter through and through. I have not only his face but also his stubborn mind. Even though I've seen all the ways in which it has hurt him to have an exact mirror of himself, I also know that he's learned to extend a bit more compassion toward himself. I know he has disapproved of some of my choices, but I know that he is still proud of me. Did your mother make you call me? He asks now. No, Dad. I'm just calling you because I want to. Okay, then. You look good. You look like you're happy. 
and I know what he's really saying. I don't come up with any comments or explanations. Thanks, Dad. I love you, too. When the rain is blowing in your face And the whole world is on your case I could offer a warm embrace To make you feel my love When evening shatters and the stars appear And there is no On the 19th of November, 1807, a 135-tonne troop ship called the Rochdale, having left Dublin and bound for service in the Napoleonic Wars, was blown off course by a storm and foundered at Sea Point near Monkstown. All 265 people on board, including 42 women and 29 children, were killed. Looters immediately descended on the smashed hull, taking what they could that was valuable, metal fittings, rope, pig carcasses, wine or brandy that might have survived in its heavy glass bottles. Broken glass would, of course, have been left behind with the splintered timber and the rest of the worthless detritus. Some two centuries later, while paddling in Sandy Cove, not so far from Sea Point, I noticed something at my feet in the shallow water. I bent down to pick it up. It turned out to be a fragment of pottery, it sat pleasingly in my open palm, about the size of a madeleine cake. Not as thick as a madeleine cake, although there was a little bit of heft to it, as much as a small wishing stone. It had a lovely, soft, powdery feel, and I couldn't stop kneading it between my finger and thumb. Years in the salt water had worn down its edges, and the blue lines in its glimpse of pattern had become hazy, bleeding into the surrounding creamy white. Standing there, my ankles still in the water, I began to speculate, fancifully, on its past. Above, on the promontory, stood the Martello Tower that features in the opening of Joyce's Ulysses. Could this shard in my hand once have been part of Buck Mulligan's shaving bowl? Might he have tipped the receptacle, accidentally one morning, from the gun rest? A daft notion, I know, Mulligan was a fictional character, but the point is, my imagination was fired, and so a hobby began, of beachcombing, of pacing the shoreline, sifting the shingle, plunging the barnacled grikes for material relics of past lives. I've treasure-hunted many beaches and harbours in Ireland and abroad, but few have proved as fruitful as that same stretch of coast where I began, those two granite miles between the forty-foot at Sandy Cove and Sea Point. There are good reasons why this shore is a beachcombing hotspot. It's close to where so many people live and to two busy ports, and it's a rocky coast, ruinous to shipping and a trap for a ship's bounty. West of Sea Point, the famous Bull Sands begin, starting an arc that curves north to the Great South Wall. At low tide, those sands seem vast and unending. Sheets of water in the distance might be heat mirages in a desert. The upshot for a beachcomber is that nothing, no flotsam, no jetsam, has a chance to come to land. Only east of Sea Point can the stuff come in, 
because the span here from deep water to savage shore is not so wide. Every beachcomber has their own private mother load, and mine is a small swathe of shingle and pebbles, yards from the Martello Tower at Seapoint, where the tragic Rochdale foundered. About one in every twenty pebbles here will be black in colour, and about one in every hundred of these pebbles won't be a pebble at all. There'll be nothing at first to distinguish it from the rounded chunks of limestone about, but hold it to the torch from your smartphone and this nondescript black lump will admit just enough light to burn at its centre with a deep marmalade or olive green. It might seem a lot of work to sort through so many pebbles, but find your first few and your eye will become attuned to the subtle surface differences between smooth black glass and smooth black stone. Fragments of black glass, or pirate glass as it's sometimes romantically called, are among the beachcombers' most sought-after finds. In the days of early commercial glassmaking, alcohol bottles were heavy, brute things, and iron slag was added to the glass to make it dark, nearly impenetrable to light, to preserve the wine and brandy that was often carried long distances on ships such as the Rochdale. This is the material that, over generations, gets worn down, smoothened by the seas, into pebble-shaped nuggets. Most of those who died on the Rochdale were buried in Carrickbrennan Cemetery above Mungstown. Today it's a quiet place, closed to the public. You'd pass it by if someone didn't point it out to you. But it's all the more beautiful for being hidden away. A peek through the bolted gate reveals bowed ranks of yew tree and crooked weathered headstones amidst crowds of loosestrife, bramble and ground elder. Midges and hoverflies glow in the sunbeams. Time and nature, on stark slabs in a once bleak Dublin acre, as on jagged brute glass, have softened a tangible testament to loss. I have been watching all month, watching the light grow, trying to be ready for the solstice, because each year Midsummer's Day always comes too soon, unannounced and unwanted, but here again, tripping me, tipping me back into the slow tilt towards autumn. How can that be? We have only just begun our summer. I am never ready for this day never emotionally prepared for the solstice. So, in recent years, I've made a real effort not to let the day sneak up on me. I try to make myself ready for its coming and send myself out into the garden each night of June like a watchman looking into the fading light as the summer dusk comes slowly down each evening, later and later, so by the time we're here at midsummer, I am somehow synchronized to its arrival and in some way aligned 
to the workings of our small part of this vast cosmos. Out here on the west coast of Clare, the midsummer days take so long to fade over the wide Atlantic Ocean that they hardly ever darken. Short hours of dusky half-light pass before another dawn comes and the sun rises up bright and blaring to pour its metallic glitter across the surface of the waves. Here in the west, light comes at you from all directions. Sky, sea, even the land glints with brilliance. And if the solstice horizons are clear, you can see in the south the Kerry Mountains. In the west, the Aran Islands, where the pale cliffs of Dune Angus shimmer majestically up out of the waves. To the north, you can see Connemara and count its twelve bends. The land and the day both feel spread out before you, unending. I like to keep the solstice free, to take the day off, to not have anything to do but watch its long hours pass. More than at any other time, I want to be here on the earth, witnessing its beauty. The day is for me a kind of retaking of a vow, a remaking of a promise I have made to myself that I will not squander my life here on earth. I shall not die without ever having really seen this place and its wonders. The solstice reminds me not to take our world's beauty for granted. It reminds me to get up more often to witness the sunrise, to always salute the moon when I see her, to live by the earth's rhythms and let the seasons and light itself enchant me, govern me. Of course, I forget my vow over and again. All through my ordinary days, I forget and remember and forget. But the solstice reawakens my vow. It pushes me to get up for the dawn, to pitch a tent in the wild, to linger with the moon and stars as they pass overhead. This midsummer, I will go again to Palnabron Dolmen deep in the barren. I will go not because of any alignment of its stones, but because it is the oldest marker of human ritual in this place. Stones aligned for the purpose of reverence. I will go to Palnabron because I went there too in deep midwinter, when the long dark ruled and night came down at four in the afternoon. Such a time of vulnerability that was, of uncertainty, as the old year ended and the new one had not yet come in. At midsummer, the sun will not set behind Palnabron until ten minutes past ten. I plan to be there through the late summer dusk as the sun sinks down in the west. I will watch for the first star, will look for the rise of the crescent moon. I'll listen as the birds settle, listen until the last bird sings her final note of evening. And then, as the long solstice day ends, I will put out my hand and touch the ancient dolmen stones. 
a gesture of gratitude, a thank you for the shelter and nourishment and protection the earth has given me since midwinter. My feet planted on the barren limestone with the light dissolving all around me, I shall do as humans have done since the dawn of time and surrender to the mysterious forces of life. Sing a song of old Love the one you When me da was vexed with us nine children, he'd raise his eyes to heaven and say, Jesus, Mary and Joseph, give me patience. This shower would drive Matt Talba back on the drink. I was small. I didn't even know who Matt Talbot was. Maybe he was an old neighbour of me dad's from town. It turns out the venerable man was from Dublin city centre but born in 1856, and not a close pal of Mielfala. However, in June 1995, Dan Ma took me to Matt Talbot's shrine in Our Lady of Lourdes Church on Sean McNermott Street. I had returned from college in Boston and loved nothing better than to ramble the streets of Dublin with me folks as they told their stories. We went inside the church, knelt to say a prayer, and then sat in the pews. The church was busy with preparations for Matt Talbot's feast day. Local women were dusting statues, sweeping floors, scraping off wax from votive candle racks and arranging flowers for the altar. We could barely get a look in at the holy man's final resting place. All I could see was sections of a wooden coffin inside sections of a glass box because three women were polishing the brass fittings of Matt Talbot's shrine. Elbow grease had nothing on them. They wouldn't rest until that resting place was gleaming. Nonetheless, me folks whispered the details they knew about Dublin's most famous teetotaler. Ma said poor Elma was a raving alcoholic who became a reformed alcoholic. She explained there were no 12-step programmes back then and the ex-gargler took to prayer in the same way he used to take to the drink. Mad for it. Da said Talbot was a hard worker, a hod man who carried bricks and blocks for stonemasons. During the lockout of 1913, the childless penitent shared his strike pay with other workers who had more mouths to feed. Then me dad started laughing, right then and there in the hushed church, and said, easy for him to stay off the drink, because he lived alone, 
and didn't have to share the one toilet with a wife and nine kids. Sure, that would drive anyone to the nearest pub. If only to use the jacks, not to mind have a jar. I started laughing too. Our laughter echoed around the church. The cleaning women gawked at us. Me mad gooshed us out of the pews, down the aisle and back out into the June sunshine. With, to care to God, I can't take yous anywhere. I'm off to me meeting. See yous back at home. She kissed us both and went off in the direction of Abbey Street. I linked arms with me da and walked down Sean Macker. We were a few days shy of Father's Day and the thought struck me. I'd left home at 18, lived away and at 25 had yet to take me da for a drink. Come on, says I. Father's Day is coming up and I want to take you for a pint. Me da beamed. Matt Talbot is after giving you the goo for afternoon drinking. Go on, Sol. Just the one mind. I've training later. We settled ourselves in a pub on North Earl Street and enjoyed a drink together. True to his word, it was just the one. Da went home to Finglas to get ready for training and I went back to me flat. I hold that memory like a child holds something precious in the cup of her hands. Me buying a drink for the man who had given me so much. For the father who had given all his children so much. Literally, his blood, his sweat, and I'm sure some tears. I had no way of knowing that would be our last Father's Day. Dad died suddenly the following January. This Father's Day, I'll do what I always do, and I'm sure Matt Talbot won't mind. I'll raise a glass in gratitude and in memory of me dad. And to all the dads, happy Father's Day. On this morning's programme, we heard Gnome is Where the Heart Is by Joseph Carney. Myriad-minded man, George Russell, A.E., was by Fran O'Rourke. Father's Day by Katrina Bruna. Black Glass was by Gavin Corbett. At the Solstice by Grace Wells. And Matt Talbot made me buy a drink for me da on Father's Day by Rachel Hegarty. The music was The Laughing Gnome by David Bowie, played by the Delta Saxophone Quartet. The arranger was Adrian Revel. King of the Fairies, played by John Feely on guitar. Make You Feel My Love by Bob Dylan, sung by Anna Brun. Drunken Sailor, played on the fiddle by Martin Hayes. And Sing a Song of Old by Claire Sands. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Elaine Conlon. The producer is Sarah Binchy. And if you're in Belfast or in the vicinity, there may still be some tickets for today's Sunday Miscellany live event at the Belfast Books Book Festival, taking place at 12 noon at the Crescent Arts Centre, with writers Wendy Erskine, John Toll, Neil Hegarty, Michal McCann and more. See belfastbookfestival.com to book ahead. That's belfastbookfestival.com or contact the Crescent Arts Centre, crescentarts.org. 
And for more from Miscellany and other arts and culture programmes, see rte.ie forward slash culture. And to listen back to this morning's programme, see rte.ie forward slash radio one. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.